At this present time, we turn in the book of Acts to a, a, a hinge to a door, as it were. And we're going to walk into a, a new section and really the door that enters us into the rest of the book. So uh, as I was prepping in my sermon time, I, I just didn't feel compelled to lay out every detail. In fact, you'll notice as we go through this that there's a lot of repetition in terms of the meaning and the statements. And so <clears throat> these things, whatever I've skipped today, though it won't be much, it'll, it'll be uh, those things which will come up again and again. All of this section, whatever is contained here in these first 16 verses, really will be unfolded in the next few sermons <clears throat> in terms of going through Acts. And so know that this is the, the last real big jump in the, the themes of Acts and these things have already been much anticipated. We have that great summary statement of Acts 1.8 that they are to be, that is the apostles and those, the church along with them, is to be witnesses to Jerusalem. We've seen that section of Acts to Judea and Samaria. We just have covered at this point the, the full encompassing of those areas. And now we're going to turn to somebody uh, who is a full Gentile, and the, the gospel is now, uh, as it were, in the storyline, going to reach the ends of the earth, uh, conceptually. Obviously, that's still not accomplished in our day. So this is a process of history being worked out, but <clears throat> this is the door whereby all those things begin to take place. <clears throat> Let me just say as we begin... Um, we are going to look at Cornelius in the first section, which is really just the first couple verses here, and talk a little bit about Cornelius's character and, and help you understand this character, um, who who he is, and him in in light of the gospel and in re- relation to believers in the old covenant, uh, because some of these things can be confusing to us. So we'll spend a little bit more time there, and then we're going to transition into the first vision. Verses 3 through 8, I I call your attention to verse 3. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision. Okay, this is Cornelius' vision, 3 through 8. And then in verse 9, all the way through verse 16, you have really the description of Peter's vision. He's going to have a second one. You'll notice in verse uh, 10 here, at the the very end of the verse, he fell into a trance. And just so you don't think that that's something different, just stylistically, he's describing the experience that he went through. Because in verse 17, he said, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the, the vision that he had seen. Okay, so this is the same thing. There's two visions, and that'll break up essentially my sermon, minus what I should say about, about Cornelius as it applies to us. <clears throat> First, Cornelius Notice in verses 1 and 2, there are four things specifically that are said about him and concerning his character and a couple things about his station and so forth. So first of all, uh, he is the first full Gentile, and this man is described by his rank in his unit. He is of the Italian cohort. <clears throat> in history, there's some speculation as to uh, where this cohort would have been situated. Some think it's in Syria. And his, yet he is, as you can tell, a, a, uh, an uncommissioned officer. He's in Caesarea at this point, which is in a different location on the Palestinian coastline <clears throat> south of Mount Carmel, if you want to go find that in your Bible map. Um, not Caesarea Philippi, the other Caesarea. Okay, <clears throat> Luke first gives quite a significant commendation of the man, and it includes four different things. You'll notice in verse 2, it says, he is firstly a devout man. We're going to look at that first. Secondly, he feared God with all his household. We'll we'll look at those two a little bit more. 
Number three, he gave alms generously to the people, that is to the Jewish nation. And it's using the same word that was used for Tabitha just above. That is, he gave charity. I wish they translated it consistently there, but but the ESV has not. And lastly, he prayed continually to God. And, And that's the last one that we'll focus on, which will transition us into the first vision. But notice that the first quality in Cornelius to be praised is his devotion. No doubt, uh, some of you have heard or said yourselves, someone say, I'm not religious. I just have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Although this is a popular sentiment in American evangelicalism, it is not a biblical idea. <laughs> the, the word itself here in this context is eusebase, means religious. It's going to be used of the <clears throat> devout worship to idols in the Areopagus later in Athens. Uh, and because part of this is true, that is, we have been brought into a relationship with Christ, not denying that, of course we have. Uh, however, it's such a truncated statement. Uh, it's, it's a statement that is more destructive than it is actually helpful. So if you've said it, I commend you not to say it, and I want to prove to you why. <clears throat> because I also want you to reclaim for yourself true religion. I want you to be a truly religious person such that you could be commended as religious, as devout in your practices before the Lord. I hope you're extremely religious, but not a Pharisee, that you'd be religious the way that Christ was, because we are to be conformed to his image. And that's really what is in focus here. You remember uh, one of the things that Luke does throughout all of Acts is he calls attention to prayer and specifically he notes that it's the uh it is the 3 p.m yeah 3 p.m and and in this we always get the the timing specifically it is the ninth hour of the day you'll notice that he is extremely religious in his uh prayer time observing the 3 p.m time well, why is that? Well, you could go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and you see Peter and John going up to the temple because at 3 p.m., that's the hour of prayer. That's what the Christians could be found doing, even in these days, going up to the temple and worshiping <clears throat> with ethnic Israel as, that, as they were. And at that time, uh, 3 p.m. is the one. So this is the time Cornelius, even as a Gentile, far away from the temple, sets aside the same hour to pray to the Lord as it was at the temple, which will become significant here in a minute. But I ask you, do you think Jesus was religious? I hope your answer is yes. What would you consider somebody who makes it their their highest priority in life to keep all the Old Testament laws to the jot and tittle? I would call that person a religious person. This is exactly what Christ came to do because you and I fail so miserably at being godly in this way. Remember Jesus' words in his inaugural and probably most famous sermon ever say this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not teaching anything uh, that we can be made right with God by our works. 
He's actually contradicting the Pharisees who had an external display of obedience, but their heart were far from righteous. They did not keep the law in the heart, although they would show that. So he uses in prayer specifically, they would make their face disfigured. They'd make themselves look haggard, as it were, in order to be seen as righteous. Oh man, he's fasting now and praying. Uh, but their heart was not engaged in the duty itself. The, the fasting wasn't wrong. The looking haggard because you had spent lots of time praying, that wasn't wrong. It was that they were doing it to please other people rather than God himself. Consider this. This is some positive doctrinal instruction about how you should think about the religion that we have. Consider this. Jesus himself institutes the rituals of baptism and the Lord's Supper to be observed by every Christian on every continent to the end of, to, to the end of time and not privately. This is not, I'm not talking about any of your private devotion. Those things, of course, are commanded. Not your private devotion, but rather in the midst of a local congregation of other people who have done the same thing and who regularly do the same thing. He also, not only does that, he sets up a government of the church with qualified appointed officers to be hopefully practiced in the same way across the world. He commands a specific day, one in seven, to be observed, which also he includes actions that we must take, otherwise be unfaithful, every single week. We must sing. We must pray. You must hear preaching. You must hear the word read. We must partake in the supper regularly. These are rules and regulations that is not left for us to figure out, but rather he has written them all down under the supervision of Jesus's handpicked apostles, and he's infallibly authored and preserved these documents and brought them into a collection which has become to us and is ought, it ought to be to us the ultimate authority and standard for the church in all places in all ages. Even more, I can say that all of these are our corporate obligation to Christ because he has brought us into a covenantal relationship which he has taken so seriously that he has sealed it in his own blood. Uh, And if you don't do those, you're not even allowed to be considered a Christian by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be rightly, seriously, increasingly religious such that we can be like Cornelius. That's what he was. And that's what we ought to be. And he's commended for it as such. Jesus didn't just fulfill the law because we can't. That's true. He also uh, has given us a law so that we might know how to live. The law of love, which is defined as the Ten Commandments. Now, we see secondly, flowing from this really, is that he is a faithful household manager. That is... He feared God with all his household. That means he took his responsibility towards his wife and his children. Uh, Very potentially, he has servants who also serve serve the Lord. Uh, Very potentially, he also is ordering them in their right worship too. Indeed, this is a great commendation for any man that he is not only godly in himself, but he has taken up the mantle of priest of his home. He has, Cornelius, has labored and structured and exhorted his home in such a way that his own might obey the Lord. And what a glory it is to him that these have, by the Spirit, come under his leadership. I pause just to say, I understand that there are difficulties in this. Calvin is extremely pastoral in his commentaries, and I thought he was worth quoting at this point because he acknowledges the difficulties 
although this is related to a man, you can find yourself in a situation um, in this congregation without a, without a husband who's serving the Lord or uh, one that who has passed on or find yourself at different points not in the same ideal situation. Calvin says this <clears throat> concerning the man, um, his difficulty and his duty at times. It says, it shall sometimes fall out so that a godly man cannot have even his wife to be of his mind concerning these things. Yet he which ruleth others must endeavor by all means to have God obeyed. So I say, men, take your own by the hand and lead them faithfully into the gates of the kingdom of Christ, like Cornelius aimed and was successful in doing. Now I just pass over two other virtues that are called out. He gave alms and he was prayerful. The giving of alms is the same word that's used of Tabitha. That is, she's full of charity and he's... uh, Obviously giving money, as it were, to the synagogue or to the temple in this context. And so they render it slightly differently. But he's just having a different application. He, he is a charitable person. He desires to give of the things that he has to those who, who don't have or the funding of the kingdom in whatever way he can. Similarly to Tabitha with her, her ministry to the widows. All of us, I, I take it, should be encouraged to do that both here through, through our regular giving, but also through what we can provide to other people. You, you, of course, will have people in your life that I don't have in my life whom God will put in your way to be charitable to. Be mindful of these people and, and make it your endeavor and your effort not to just keep all for yourself, but to give of what God has given to you. Lastly, prayerful. This is the virtue that's really enfolded into the rest of our section. So I'm just going to take us into verse 3 through 8, and we can look at the first vision that is had. Verse 3, it says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he's scared. And he says, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And then he asked him to send for Peter, the apostle, not unlike the Samaritans earlier, who uh, Peter had heard that the gospel was received. Peter and John go and visit the Samaritans so that the Holy Spirit will fall. We're not going to get there, but you should think of the consistency of what's happening here. The thing that I want to mainly call out here at this time is that Cornelius as a godly man is found praying. This is his spiritual discipline. And and really prayer is, is one of the central pillars of the Christian faith. Really you should assess your own maturity in the Christian faith by the amount of devotion in prayer that you have. Or if you're like most of us who in the lack thereof, we should be regularly, consistently praying. It says that he was always praying. Obviously, he's doing other things, but he's fulfilling, really, these commands that are in the New Testament to pray unceasingly. He, he was a man who probably prayed in the morning, in the evening, at the meal with his family. He probably prayed before he went into work when he stubbed his toe and got hurt. I'm sure he was consistent. He was setting, in this case aside a particular time of day to be regular and religious about making sure he sets his face before God. He is, he is fervent in faith. That's demonstrated in his prayer. <clears throat> I can say to all of us, one who prays alone where no one sees is indeed seen by God as he prays. That should be our desire. <clears throat> we're praying not just when we're with others, but much and often alone, though praying with others is very good too. <clears throat> so after this angel shows up in the middle of his prayer, he um, replies and asks what he wants done. He's scared. <clears throat> but I want to focus on this answer. Your prayers and charity have ascended as a memorial before God. 
This is the language of the Old Testament sacrifice. You can even picture the, uh, the animal being burnt up on the altar and the smoke ascending, as it were, into the nostrils of God as a pleasing aroma. This is what is occurring. It's specifically over and over again, there's the sacrificial language of the Old Testament that is being hearkened to. Um, even uniquely in, you, in Luke at this point, because he wants you to make a connection. I think that connection can be clarified for you in just this quotation from David. This is in Psalm 141, 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. That is the priestly service of, uh, in our Old Testament, we're going through... Um, Korah's rebellion, we, we're halfway through, I think, and there is this, the censers and the incense, and the censers basically become fire, and they destroy the, the people who would wield them because they're desiring to take away the priesthood from Aaron and Levi, and then Aaron turns around and makes atonement with his censer. <laughs> it's because only the priest is allowed to do that. Well, we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. This priest that we have <clears throat> has made us acceptable to God such that we as a part of him can fulfill this word. Your, uh, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. You see, those shadows in the Old Testament are fulfilled in, in the church such that our prayers are like incense. Our lifting up of our hands is a better and greater fulfillment than even what was there in the sacrificial system. That is the ceremonial system of the Old Testament. Though apart from the temple, Cornelius fulfills the words of Jesus to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You remember Jesus is having a, it seems like a, a little friendly spat going back and forth with this lady who's a Samaritan, and she wants to argue about the location. Our fathers worship over on this mountain, and you say that you're supposed to worship over there in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to her concerning the new temple that's related to his body, that's the new location of worship forevermore, uh, not one that can be plotted on a map specifically, but rather he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus' statement, not that mountain, not this mountain, by faith in Christ. That's, that's how it's had to the end of the world. Amen. Now, <clears throat> I think here, we can get confused about Cornelius because we're like, he hadn't heard the gospel. And I, I think many people, for various different reasons that I won't go into fully today, are confused about how uh, believers have been saved in the Old Testament. And, and therefore, what we should see is not that this man was more spiritual than anybody else, that he somehow merited something before God and thus earned the gospel being sent to him. No, 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 not, not at all. This man is a believer already, though he hadn't yet heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a huge transition in all of history. It's going to be the way it is now forever. And so <clears throat> the question comes up in our mind about how Old Testament believers were saved. Because this guy, in, in a sense, is in, as Paul says, the overlap of the ages. The old, the old age of the Old Covenant is coming to a screeching halt. It will when the temple is destroyed, according to Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24 and following and the new age has already started. There is an hour when true worshipers will worship God, not because they go to the temple, but rather in spirit and in truth. The fulfillment of these things has come. And so we see this. So I read just in the gospel and extent of its grace from the 1689. This is the first uh, paragraph only. I'm going to read this first one, say a few words, and then read it all together. 
Because the covenant of works was broken by sin and was unable to confer life. Okay, so let me let me explain that if you're not familiar with that this terminology. The covenant of works is the covenant that was made with Adam. You remember that Adam was told he was in perfect fellowship with God and he was told when you eat that tree over there in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's right. Good job, boys. Now the opposite is true. If you keep covenant and you are faithful, you will receive eternal life. You'll live forever. That's why Jesus comes, obeys the law perfectly, and earns for us what? Eternal life. That's what he gives to us, okay? This is the covenant of works. Jesus fulfills the covenant of works. But you and I are born in an ordinary way, born in sin. We come out of our, our mother's womb damnable, according to Adam and our own works. We come out of the womb guilty in Adam. We have to be in Christ in order to be saved, in order to have life. And thus, because none of us, nobody, no matter how good they are, let's even grant that they live perfectly, uh, they are still born, as it were, with a corrupt nature and original sin. They cannot inherit life. None of us can. And therefore, it says, God was pleased to proclaim, this is to Adam, the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and producing in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel in its substance was revealed and made effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. So, what this means is, if, you're, if you can't quote it, let me just read it so you hear. When the fall happens and God indicts them of their sin, the first promise of redemption occurs here. I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the gospel. It is by faith in this promise that Adam and Eve and Abel were saved. It is by this promise that is not a full declaration of the gospel, but in its substance is the meaning in the heart of the gospel, whereby every single Old Testament saint was saved. Not only that, but also there is an unpacking throughout history of this gospel. So more and more and more of it's understood. The point of this chapter in the 1689 and in Acts chapter 10 is to clarify really, and what needs to be clear, at least in our minds, is that every single person in history in the history of the world, is saved in the same manner, although the form of it can look slightly different. Redemption began with that promise to Adam, and it is fitting because he is the, as we call it, the covenant head of humanity. He's the head of the household of all humanity, as it were, and because he fell, the whole household has fallen. So it's fitting then that he, having fallen, receives the first gospel promise, such that he might find himself in a new household, that is the household of the second Adam, the second head of humanity. And all those might be found believing in that same redemption after the fall. So that everybody can say, from Adam to you and beyond, that we are all saved by sheer grace, by faith alone and only in Christ. Every believer has heard the substance of the gospel in every age, albeit in the Old Testament with less understanding because God in his providence and in his eternal wisdom saw fit to only give bits and pieces along the way. 
and unfold that and then to draw it all together in the New Testament such that no other writing needs to be produced and no other thus saith the Lord on the level of Scripture ever needs to be said because all of these things are now contained authoritatively in the gospel witness of the New Testament. So, to be absolutely clear, every believer has been elected. Every believer, Old Testament and New, is united to Christ, regenerated by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, justified by faith, adopted, sanctified, glorified, and will be glorified. Thus, from the start, there's one people of God, one tree of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Sit, all the same. Uh, those who were, uh, I won't expand anymore. I see my time. So <clears throat> that being extremely clear to you, we move then into the second vision. That is, go get Peter. And now Peter is going to be led by the Spirit and he is going to be moved into a vision of his own and it's strikingly similar there's lots of providential things uh, people say oh that's coincidental uh, this would be very providential in the reading and <clears throat> ironically so in many of the cases so I, I encourage you to read it over again at a later time so now there's two servants that are called uh, three servants really and that are sent, another, another soldier. And then this scene as it shifts to Peter has him experience a, uh, a spontaneous vision, slightly different hour at noontime. And however, this is really interesting that God first desires to providentially lead Peter to have a strengthening of his sensation to hunger so that he goes and tells him like, hey, can you make me a meal? And he goes up and prays, and while they're making the meal, then, while there's a heightened sense of hunger, now God is going to drop on him a heavenly vision. So let me just read it, and we'll walk through this um, in parts. It says in verse 11, once the trance had fallen on him, it says, And he saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals, literally creeping things, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, sacrifice, and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So <clears throat> Peter, in this heightened state of, <clears throat> of hunger, now gets a vision. And God lets down a sheet, something like a sheet, from heaven <clears throat> really we should see this as god's divine meal this is his picnic for peter god makes a, a a divine stamp of approval on this culinary spread that peter is going to receive that's why it comes from heaven the idea is supposed to be in the meaning of the in the meaning of the thing that this is god's doing now <clears throat> he's a little bit confused or nervous about this because in a sort of panic-filled way, he's seeing a, a vast array of creatures that don't conform to the Mosaic Code. That is the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant. And so he's like, hey, these flying, creeping, and roaming things, I've never eaten those. Lord, I don't eat that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> the voice from heaven that came and it said, rise, Peter, uh, literally sacrifice and eat. That's n almost always how it's translated. <clears throat> the best Greek dictionary, known as BDAG for short, lists this actually under, though it can be used non-ceremonially. It, it says in this section it is to kill ceremonially. 
<laughs> that is, this is, I, this is, and Luke loves doing this. He's done this a number of times. He loves to lay on like the irony. That's how he gets across his point really well. It's like really thick. It's supposed to be pretty humorous. He's saying as a faithful Jew, I don't eat that stuff. And God says, sacrifice it, eat it. And he previously said, listen, this guy's uh, altar worship in his home had gone up to heaven. He is saying, listen, the Old Testament is being fulfilled here. There's something new that is going on. Uh, Time does not permit me, but I'll just say that this is an apostle. Since there's none of those living anymore, there's no moves of the Spirit like this anywhere similar. Uh, Rome, if you're not familiar, the Roman Catholic Church really by Pope Francis is being set up to follow after lots of the main line denominations in the Americas here where they have accepted homosexuality and transgenderism and these things as a new move of the spirit. We got to be open to the spirit's move. That's the exact terminology they're using. There's no move of the spirit like that ever again since since this, not in the same way. If it is, it's the Reformation, ad fontis, back to the sources, what has the scripture said? Not this new thing that we make up, whether it be uh, those doctrines or anything like that. But Peter is super alarmed about this and says, no, 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 no. I, I don't break the ceremonial law. And just contemplate that for a second. That's a huge point. Peter, well into the book of Acts, as an apostle, has not been taught by Jesus to disobey the law at all. In fact, he's assuming that all of it is in force, even the ceremonial thing that's related to Israel. That's huge. Some people get the idea that when Jesus comes on, it's a whole new program. But, but in fact, that's not the case. Unless it's clearly stated that it's set aside, it still applies, even in its new way. So God could have, if he so desired, to expand the gospel to all nations and still required circumcision, still required certain food laws. But in fact, it is the case that God in this in the New Testament, uh, in this word from heaven, declares extremely clear that all these foods, now it's going to relate to the Gentiles in the next section, has cleansed all of these foods. They are ceremonially, ceremonially not to be considered as prohibited. In fact, recommended. You, know, you, you didn't eat bats before? I don't ever want to eat a bat, really. That was something that was forbidden, but now it's being put before Peter to eat. God says, eat it. You don't have any qualms about it. Don't, don't bat an eye. Eat it. <clears throat> These foods that are, are clean now are to be considered in a different way. They have fulfilled their purposes. And in order to make it really clear that it's fixed by God, it's not just Peter hallucinating because he's super hungry or whatever, It is fixed by God because it happens three times. Peter himself, although this is the biblical pattern, the angels in the temple vision in Isaiah say, holy, holy, holy. God is holy like no other. He he is so set apart. Um, The repetition in the Old Testament like that is to say that uh, when it gets to three times, it means it's like uh, it applies specially and significantly to to that thing. And in this case, Peter, I think, would identify very well with this because not too many, um, not too much earlier, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And he is restored by Jesus to his office saying, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He, he does the same thing three times. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? And he weeps. But at the third time, he recognizes that he has been fully restored by God to this office. In a similar way, I I assert to you that it's done three times to make the point. It's clean. It's clean. Don't ask me again. Clean. Okay. God has done this. Now, the biblical support, although it's 
numerous throughout the New Testament, it, it needs to be stated lest we get it confused. The support is pronounced by Jesus himself in Mark seven nineteen. He calls out bunches of sins, especially those things that are external. It's not what goes into you that defiles a person, makes someone unclean. It's what comes out of you, what comes out of your heart. And therefore, Mark comments, thus he declares all foods clean, Mark seven nineteen. You can go look at that. Paul also affirms this in multiple places, very notably Romans 14, 20, which we'll talk about here in a minute. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Timothy 4, nothing's to be rejected. No food, no drink, it's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving by the word of God in prayer. All foods are clean. All drinks are clean. Now, the 1689 in chapter 19 makes it very clear, uh, as is the it's identical with the Westminster and the Savoy at this point that the ceremonial law, which of course, as you should know, includes clean and unclean foods to the people of Israel pertained to that nation of Israel until the time of Christ, when he both fulfilled these things in and of himself and then abrogated them. That's the language that's used in the New Testament, and I'll show you it in a second. But Jesus fulfills these things, that is the, the food laws, and then abrogates them, that is formally puts them aside. They have served their purpose. You can think of it like kids learning to ride a bike. They might have a balanced bike for a while, and then they're on to a regular pedal bike. Or um, a better analogy, really, as kids start with the training wheels, Okay, the ceremonial laws of Israel. And then when Christ comes, the training wheels come off and they just get to ride the real thing. They get to ride the bike that is Christ. So the most theolo- because this is so theologically significant and we're going to cover lots, here's where I'm going to spend the rest of my time before I apply this. So let me say, if you want to look at this and turn here, Ephesians 2 is where I got to go. It is the extended teaching from the apostle concerning the relationship between Jew and Gentile and the one new man that is Christ Jesus' church. So the, the point of this section is to say, you can find this in verse, um, he's addressing the Ephesians, okay? Verse 11, therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises or of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus, excuse me. You who were once far off from the commonwealth of Israel, the promises, God, all that stuff, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you Ephesians are no longer strangers and aliens. Like you're not foreigners like it was seen in the Old Testament. You're no longer estranged from the commonwealth of Israel, but you are what? (laughs) Your fellow citizens with the saints. You have dual citizenship and one is with the commonwealth of Israel. That is members of the household of God built on the foundation of he who laid the church, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. 
So the point here in this section is that now that Gentiles are made a part and members of the same commonwealth of Israel, they are both, we and, and Jews in Christ are part of one household. There are not regulations for one part of the household and not the other. God does not desire to divide the household and keep one in hostility against the other. He does not treat the one different than the other. No, rather, Jesus does away with those things, specifically the ceremonial law that keeps Israel distinct from all other nations because all other nations have been granted to be a part of the same household. And therefore, as it relates to the nation state of Israel and it relates to these people, the former laws, they only prefigured Christ. As I said before, they are training wheels for those people. But now we are under one roof. We have one law so that the foreigner and the stranger have the same law as the Israelite. Same thing, actually, that we see all throughout the Old Testament. The one who wants to observe the Passover, same law, include him. He's not a, he's not a stranger in this regard. He's not a stranger from God. And now here... The full unveiling has come that there is new food regulations, namely none. And those things have passed away because Christ is being distributed to all the nations as it were. So I want to apply this just for five minutes and wrap up because I think there needs to be instructions related to the conscience. Okay, I want to make this clear because this is the realm in which food things find themselves and many other things. And I want to help you understand the conscience because I think, especially in the last years, I've talked to different saints here as well as been, you know, have my ear caught different things in the Christian world. I think we're extremely fuzzy as it relates to the conscience. And I want to clear some things up here because it's directly associated with our text. <clears throat> the realm, these things are now, food is placed in the realm of the, the conscience, the individual conscience of a believer. This does not mean that it's to be completely unregulated. Of course, that's the case with the simple readings of Romans 14. He tells you times that you should forgo certain things and you should not make a big deal about things. That's a regulation of how you think about your conscience in relation to other consciences, Okay. So it's not completely unregulated, but what it means at a basic level is that these things related to food now in the new covenant are not any longer in the realm of command. They're not in the realm of law. They're not in the realm of obligation. They are rather a matter of individual conscience. So for example, if someone says, I'd rather not get baptized because I just don't really like getting wet. Well, then it would be the necessity of anybody who's talking to that person to exhort that person, Jesus commanded it. You cannot say no. You have to. You must. You're obligated. This is a law. It's, it's not a preference. It's something you must do. I don't really like singing, so I'm not going to sing in church. Well, sorry, you have to, otherwise you're sinning against God. He commands you to do it. It's not a mere preference at all. It's exactly what you're commanded to do. So when it, when it comes to the commands, therefore, it's a different category. It's not conscience. But when there's, no, when there's no command that governs these things, like food here, then it's the realm of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. It is... Uh, um, it is a place <clears throat> that, that we get to determine what we do. <clears throat> now, here's, a, here's, a, few, here's a, a caution for us. In our day and age, lawlessness, disobedience to the commands of God, is a light thing in the Christian church. Happens everywhere. There are plenty of places where... Um, um, it seems that churches fulfill, uh, let us sin that grace may abound. 
where sin is not taken as seriously as it ought to. And so we need to be careful, even though that's a different realm, that's a, a law realm and not a conscience realm. We, we need to be rigorous about our thinking about this command, because it, uh, uh, these things, because it's not unlikely that we would be not careful in how we cultivate our understanding of the conscience and might even cultivate a heart of unbelief. <clears throat> the answer for anything related to God's law is not to slack God's law. That's not what grace is. Grace abounds over the law and covers your sinfulness. Okay, That's where grace abounds. And we need to remember that uh, law uh, is met with confession and repentance. And now, <clears throat> what do we say then when there is no law? When there's no law, how do we then determine what to do? It's well and good and appropriate to first and foremost strongly and seriously acknowledge that to submit to human commandments and prohibitions on things which legitimately fall within the realm of conscience, to submit to those is wrong and to betray liberty of conscience. You should not listen to those who would want to bind your conscience unnecessarily. And so I've heard it said many times that <clears throat> when it comes to conscience issue, well, that's up to you. Don't, don't worry about it. That's good. I think that's right on the one hand. However, I would assert that this also doesn't actually help you determine what the heck to do. <laughs> it says you're free to do it. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm actually looking for help. Like, what should I do? And so, although this isn't a command to you, it's what I commend to you. It's just a way that I think you ought to process things related to conscience. <clears throat> and I have two principles that I want to say. First, principle is that we should agree that on conscience issues, it, it's, a mat, it's a matter of personal faith and our personal walk with God Paul makes this really plain in Romans 14, quote, he says, we live to the Lord, individually so, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And therefore, he says, we ought to be confident in our conscience decisions because it's a matter of me living out my faith before God, which means it's not unimportant. It doesn't save me. We can disagree about it. But it's still me trying to live before God. And therefore, it cannot be unimportant. Right? It's of course important, even if we arrive at different conclusions. Right? That's, that's the point. So first of all, don't say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. That's not true. It, it does matter. Uh, and and the, the point in our, the church that we got to say is we got to be careful of each other's conscience. <clears throat> and uh, praise where... That servant is, insofar as it's legitimate. Second principle follows from that, which is our conscience ought not to be unguided or undisciplined, but rather guided by a conscience which is increasingly informed by Scripture. You can make conscience decisions that are informed by the world. You can. It's not wrong, but it doesn't really fit biblically. In fact, you, you might not be able to get there if you're just taking the Bible at its word. We need to have a conscience that, that thinks rigorously biblical so that we can make good and increasingly better applications of our lives. The answer is not simply, well, it's up to you, <clears throat> um, but it's rather, what should we do as the most God-glorifying and biblical solution? How do we do this? <laughs> um, I want to give you one that's maybe not pressing, <clears throat> or maybe it is. But let, let me say, related to children, I've heard a question recently is, how many children should I have? Okay, how many children should I have? Well, we acknowledge first that that's a conscience decision, right? Okay, but I'm also not saying that that's not important, right? I, I think it is important. Although the areas, uh, the area, uh, the answers, excuse me, will 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 vary. The areas will vary. <laughs> so I was trying to say the answers will vary. 
Let me give you a couple biblical principles that, that if you're thinking along with these, drive at a kind of answer, though all these things are, are determined also in light of providence and all sorts of other factors, okay? But if you hear very strongly that children are a blessing, when our whole culture says the opposite, we can be formed or under, uh, be swayed more by the culture's understanding of children and how they, they uh, say, it's just a bunch of cells, abort it, things like that. You can be, um, hear people in the church, like I heard uh, over a decade ago, like, how many kids do you want? And I'm like, ah, oh, I want a bunch. And they're like, um, I, I got lots of flack. Um, in, in Christians, once we started to have two, basically said, are you guys done now? Are you, are you done? Um, because, listen, our culture is very hostile to children. That's, that's, we're actually to the place where we're falling, we're very close to falling below replacement levels, which is very scary, in fact. Children are a blessing. Uh, they're a blessing that comes with a lot of responsibility. But if I, if I hear that, and I also hear, which is a command that's still in force, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I know that's much larger than me. What's it actually take <laughs> exactly to fill the earth? It takes, takes a number of babies. And multiplying is usually more than replacing. Multi- multiplying, two times two is four and so forth. It aims you, though your mileage may vary. If you have this biblical picture, it actually frames the discussion in such a way, well, if I'm trying to strive for those things, I probably got to start earlier than later. I probably got to start earlier. If I'm going to multiply, if I'm going to, if I'm going to have, you know, more than one kid, I, I, I um, am going to aim at this earlier. And I, I not only have to get on it earlier, I have to get at it more often than people normally do. Um, so this is, this is a way to, <clears throat> though you, you, you may be unable to have kids, you might get in a situation that it would be unwise to go from three to four or from, from one to two. I, there, there's all sorts of things in this fallen world that might prohibit that. But the scriptures, in a glorious way, orient us to a certain kind of thinking. And you know what the scriptures do related to children? Is they get you off yourself. They get you way off yourself. It says, think about the whole world. And you having a slice of children that make up a tribe in that world. Get, get your eyes 700 years down the road. Don't, don't worry about your finances all the way now. Be, be prudent. Be a good manager of your things. But this is a blessing that God wants you to strive for. And so that doesn't, that doesn't for some, that's unsatisfying. We like human doctrines which say, you must have five. <laughs> uh, for a while, that would be a really funny joke because the Langtons and, and Numbers had five all at once uh, here. But <clears throat> I, I think it's, I think we need to resist those sorts of things and say it's a wisdom call. But nonetheless, there's also a a biblical mindset. And that's what we need to be concerned with. When we have the biblical mindset, it's not surprising that we would land in very similar places. In fact, when we're all saying the same thing, we're like, uh, sister, sister Falcon, children are a blessing. They're a blessing with a lot of responsibility, lots of stinky diapers, blessing with lots of loud noises. But sister, they're a blessing. Or if your uh, things are tight financially, uh, we'll go, God, God's made you rich. Owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You could, you could probably do it. There's some lead time. You got nine months to prepare. You can earn a couple extra jobs. They don't eat that much when they're little. <laughs> uh, I know because our bill's going up. Well, this is all that I have to say today. Uh, you, I just want us to um, avoid saying 
conscience stuff doesn't matter, and then also the other ditch uh, that, that turns into legalism. What, we, we ought not to be legalists. That's, that's sinfully wrong uh, in terms of putting man-made commands. But we should also go, well, what does the Bible say, and how can we live most faithfully in light of that? And because God has made us with all different capacities, put us in all different situations, it would look different to the person a thousand years from today than it does a thousand years in the past who live in, in this place. So let us, let us be rigorously biblical and let us enjoy uh, all those things which our consciences approve because Christ has made us clean to him and all things clean to us. Let us pray.